Uh, we're going to uh, jump right in um, into this. In this lesson, we're going to talk about the two sides of God's judgment. Um, the, the judgment of God will cause uh, uh, people to rejoice, but it's also going to cause others to, to weep and to mourn and wail. And so there's two, two sides of God's judgment with that. And so I'm going to read for, uh, for us, and, and you can follow along in whatever Bible translation or whatever you're reading. I'll be reading from the NIV, chapter 19 of Revelation. And starting with verse 1. And we all ready to go, Lauren? Thank you. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. And then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like the loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it, for I am a fellow servant with you, and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 11, And I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire. And on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God. 
so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them that were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, speaking of Jesus Christ, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Wow. That is quite a picture that is painted for us that we're going to get into in this. And so looking at your outline, we're going to talk about the word hallelujah. And it's mentioned here uh, actually four times. And we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the second coming of Christ, the place, purpose, plan, and person for all of that. So jumping right in here. First of all, when the, think about it this way. When the seventh seal was broken, uh, you recall in Revelation chapter 8, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That does not mean the joke, that does not mean that men get to heaven before women. Just a joke I threw out there. Uh, anyway, uh, okay. But uh, uh, that was Revelation chapter 8. But here now in Revelation chapter 19, uh, it is described, heaven is described as a very, not silent, but noisy place. A lot of shouting, a lot of worshiping, a lot of praising going on. Why? Because it's the time to celebrate. Why? Because God has judged the harlot city. All right? The harlot city of Babylon represents what? The world. The world system. Uh, this evil woman represents the enemies of God and the church. She represented the worldly system that opposes all that is right, all that is holy, anything from God. Thus, when the harlot falls, the kingdom of evil falls. And this is, I think, really going to be one of the greatest moments in history. And, and, and honestly, uh, mankind has not an inkling of what's, what's coming. I mean, for the most part, all right? Uh, in Revelation 18, uh, there was, remember... Uh, a voice from heaven calling for celebration in verse 20. Rejoice over her, the harlot city. O heaven, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has judged her, the harlot city, for the way she's treated you. And so really, Revelation 19, 1 through 10, is a response to heaven's call to rejoice. And it's time to shout hallelujah. Now, what does the word hallelujah mean? Anyone? Praise God. Praise the Lord. The word hallelujah is a Hebrew word. It's made of two words joined together. Hallel, Hallel means praise, and Jah is short for Yahweh or Jehovah. And so thus, hallelujah means praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Interesting also that the word hallelujah is in in almost every language, it has this word, hallelujah, a form of the word hallelujah. 
the word hallelujah occurs a lot of times in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew scriptures, it introduces many of the Psalms. You can read about that, Psalms 106, 111 through 113, 117, 135, 146, 47, 48, 49, and 150. So a lot of the Psalms are introduced with this word. Uh, the translation of hallelujah, as I said, is often praise the Lord. But the word hallelujah, even though it occurs a lot in the Old Testament, it only occurs four times in the New Testament and that is right here in Revelation chapter 19. So four times in this chapter, we have the four hallelujahs in the New Testament. Now, John, when John saw this vision, John was filled with emotion. And, and, and much so much the fact that he was so filled with joy, uh, you recall in 1910, that he bowed to the angel. And the angel says, dude, don't do that. I'm just a servant like you are. You know, worship God. And so John, you know, knows that, but the angel directed John toward God, uh, which really all true messengers of God will always direct praise away from themselves and toward God. Um, that's a given. Uh, but, but John was so filled with joy, he forgot that at this moment. Well, in chapter 22, he must have forgot again because the same thing was said in chapter 22, 8 and 9. Uh, just a little side lesson for us. Strong feelings of emotion can cause us to lose sight of truth. In other words, sometimes the heart can block out the head. Be careful. Be careful that uh, you know emotions are good. God used them. God, God gave us emotions. We can use emotions for praise and worship or whatever. But always keep in mind that we are not governed or guided by our emotions, but by truth and by God's word. Um, but also, um, let's not be stoic because if they're getting excited in heaven, we can get excited here about what's going to happen as well. And so bottom line is, uh, the purpose of prophecy is about Christ. Fix your eyes on him, give your emotions and your attention to him. Now, one of John's purposes, you recall, was to encourage his readers, was to encourage believers uh, during hard times. It always encourages, I think, people to remember, you know something? Uh, God is a God of victory. And God's victory is certain, even though we might not see that right here and right now with our physical eyes or whatever. And so let's look at some reasons every believer will have for shouting hallelujah or praise the Lord. A, B, and C on your outline. First of all, uh, A, hallelujah for salvation, glory, and power belong to God. Now, sometimes it might appear that the devil's winning, that, that evil is winning. But never lose heart in the fact of knowing, as you know God's word, in the end, God wins. In the end, uh, there is victory for the people of God. God is always in control. The battle is the Lord, is the Lord's, the victory belongs to God. You recall when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, he once thought that he created Babylon with his own power, Daniel 4, 29 through 30. But guess what? After a seven-year diet of grass, he changed his mind. All right. Uh, the king learned some great truths. For example, Daniel 4, 32. The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And so Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar learned these lessons. Uh, Daniel 4.35, he says, 
He, he, God, does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And so think of it this way. Rulers rise and fall like the sea. I mean, they come and go. God establishes one. He raises one up. He puts down another. And so basically, uh, God is still the God of victory. And so we can be assured uh, that salvation, glory, and power belong to him. You recall that God raised up Assyria to punish Israel. Then he raised up Babylon to punish Assyria. In the end, he will raise up a final form of Babylon. Then at the second coming, he will judge the kingdom of Satan. So I say, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to God. I know people mock God today, and that's going to increase. But yet, uh, even though people might mock God today, believers can still say, hallelujah. Why? Because salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Friends, never forget, God is large and in charge, and God has the final word, the final say. Period. All right? And so, uh, in the end, His kingdom will be the only left one left standing there's coming a day and you know this as well as i do but there's coming a day when every tongue will confess his lordship every knee will bow you know the victory is his hallelujah number one number two hallelujah for he has condemned the great prostitute revelation 9 verse 2 now the bible contrasts lots of different groups with opposite emotions for example there was opposite emotions when Solomon's temple was rebuilt, Ezra 3.12. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Weeping, shouting, all right? Uh, you recall in Matthew 9, 23 and 24, some cried at the funeral of Jairus' daughter, others were laughing. Jesus promised that sinners would weep and that uh, saints would rejoice. And, and uh, uh, sinners would laugh at one time while believers wept, but it's going to be turned around. I tell you the truth, he says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Uh, also, five virgins rejoiced while five were ashamed and sorrowful. Jesus is going to separate the sheep and the goats. The sheep will rejoice for eternity, but I can guarantee you there's not going to be one happy goat. All right? Um, so we have this, this opposite emotions, if you will, uh, contrasting people. Uh, there are two crowds in Revelation 17 through 19. One crowd is weeping. They're crying while the other is rejoicing. Think about this. Those that the world would, would deem as being important, the kings, the rulers, the seamen, uh, the rich people, the wealthy or whatever, uh, they, they can have their time of laughing now, but there's coming a day of mourning for them, all right? And in, even for us, we might weep now, but there's coming a day of hallelujah, rejoicing for the people of God. And so two great crowds in Revelation 17 through 19. Those who love the world will cry when judgment comes. In contrast, there are roars of hallelujah from the other crowd. The angels, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and the saints are shouting hallelujah. I mean, not just 
Hallelujah. But it's shouting. It's loud, it says. And so they don't rejoice because others are suffering, but they rejoice because ultimately now good has triumphed over evil. They celebrate because God has triumphed over Satan. Those who rejoice last rejoice best. Let me say it again. Those who rejoice last rejoice best. It's an honor to serve God now, but it's going to be hallelujah worship celebration when everything is put right. It's better right now to suffer for what is right. Therefore, he who laughs last laughs best. Church, plan ahead. All right, number two. Number three, hallelujah for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Now, interesting, this, these verses, uh, 6 through 9 in Revelation 19, uh, refer to two different events. They, they mention a wedding, but they also mention a wedding supper. Uh, in Jewish culture, we're going to talk about this a little bit, in Jewish culture, the wedding and the wedding feast were always together. There was a wedding, there was a wedding feast. Still, it is a good approach to approach this with humility. Uh, there are a lot of symbols and pictures and illustrations in Revelation that are given to us as we've talked about from week one. We don't understand everything there is to understand. And the person that says, I can tell you exactly this, this and that and everything else, um, be, be weary of them. Uh, see, on one hand, Jesus is the groom and the church is his bride. On the other hand, the bride of Christ, honestly, is not like any other bride. Um, uh, his bride is not one woman. The, Christ, uh, the bride of Christ is made up of millions of men, women, and kids, boys and girls, children. In a normal wedding, there is a bride and there are guests. But the wedding of Christ and his bride is not a normal wedding. The angel said in verse 9, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, once again, in a normal wedding, we invite guests. However, the wedding of Christ and his bride, those invited may refer to believers themselves. The important thing is, is that if you've received an invitation, you better show up. All right. If you're invited to this wedding, make sure you go. All right. Don't say, well, I'm not sure about now. You're going to be there. So a uh, Jewish wedding, another thing, uh, a little background of Jewish weddings. A Jewish wedding was the second step between a husband and his wife. The first step was before the wedding when they were betrothed, when they were engaged. In this first step, the woman agreed to become the bride of a certain man. She was then promised to him, betrothed, promised, engaged to him. During this period, they were called, literally called husband and wife. Um, however, they did not live together, nor did they have sexual relations during that period. Now, if the husband died before the wedding, uh, the promised wife was called a virgin who, was, who is a widow. A virgin who is a widow. You recall in biblical accounts here, Joseph and Mary were engaged, betrothed, when she was going to then be with baby, the Christ child. And so basically what was going on here is if a promised woman became pregnant before the wedding, the Bible called that the sin of adultery. Uh, the pre-wedding relationship between a man and a woman was very strong. Even that betrothal, that engagement period, could only be broken by a certificate of divorce. Uh, you recall, therefore, that's what Joseph planned to do with Mary once he found out she was pregnant. Not to embarrass her or whatever, just 
to divorce her. Well, they weren't, in our, in our terminology, weren't married, you know, uh, consummated, whatever, yet, but uh, that's what he wanted to do, and that's when the angel said, hey, you know, this is of God. Uh, Hartman paraphrased, very condensed there. And so basically, think of it this way. You and I right now are in a pre-wedding period. We're in that waiting period. Paul reminded the Corinthians that they were part of the promised bride of Christ. And Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 1. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I promised you to one husband, Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. And so once again, Paul's saying, guys, I promised you to, to one husband, Christ. Uh, make sure you're living for him and that kind of thing. Well, the Lamb's Bride is made up of all New Testament believers, which includes then even those that are killed in the tribulation. Uh, we are promised to Christ now. Thus, because we are promised to Christ now, we live a pure, holy life before him as we wait for that wedding and the wedding feast. Then we're going to shout, Hallelujah! All right? That's what we longed for, lived for, waited for, um, everything all, uh, included in that. Now, the bride usually wears a special dress for the wedding. What will the bride of Christ wear? It says in Revelation 19, 7 and 8, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Now, John emphasizes that the believer's part in salvation here is that we must overcome the part of the bride, but he does not describe the bride wearing the righteousness Christ gives us through his blood. Rather, he says the bride made herself ready. She clothes herself with righteous deeds. Still, she was given the clothes she put on. And so basically, John is talking to us, and again, I've said this over and over again, if this book teaches us anything, it teaches us the personal responsibility of the believer, of the Christ follower. And so there is a part that we play in all of this as well. Just because you've been given wedding clothes to wear, those clothes do no good if they're going to hang in your closet and you're not going to put them on. So there's a cooperation. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit. All right. Um, also, after the wedding in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, this supper or feast is for all the guests who come to the wedding of the bride and the groom. Uh, the angel said, verse 9, to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of Christ. Just wanted to read a notation in the Fire Bible, Full Life Study Bible on this verse in 19. This was from chapter 19, verse 7. His bride has made herself ready. The chronology of chapter 19 places the bride, the church, already in heaven before Christ's coming to earth. Many interpreters believe this indicates the church has already been caught up to heaven before Christ's coming, coming pictured in verses 11 through 21. Two reasons are giving then. The bride is entirely dressed and ready in heaven for the wedding of the Lamb. Thus, the church must already be raptured in heaven. Secondly, the bride who is already in heaven is fully clothed in the righteous acts of the saints. Verse 8, for the righteous acts of the saints to be complete, they must be in heaven and delivered from all impurity. And so I mentioned Sunday in my sermon 
I had ordered out the book, and I should be getting it on Monday or Tuesday of this coming week. Uh, but it's the book by Dr. Michael Brown and Dr. Keenan, I think is his other author's name. And it's why I'm not afraid of the Antichrist, why we don't believe in the pre-rapture um, um, theology or whatever. Uh, uh, and so I haven't got that book yet, but I would like to know how they address uh, the saints already being in heaven. And uh, I'll get to that. It'd be probably this summer when I'll read that book. But uh, anyway, um, I just want to read that notation to you. Now, there we have then basically, once again, those in Christ are the bride. The bride does not usually need an invitation to her own wedding, but this is not a normal wedding. But we do have the church and heaven shouting hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And gave you the answers for that. Let's talk about then in verses 11 through 21, the second coming of Christ. Four points there, looking at the place, purpose, plan, and person of this time. But first of all, the rider on the white horse. Um, God, think about, I, think about this thought. I, I read this, and I, as I haven't been able to put this out of my mind since I read it, but God has been at war with Satan before the creation of mankind. There's been this battle going on, this this spiritual battle, this engagement, if you will. And the war has lasted for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, God alone knows the sins of Satan and of every person. And God will, God will judge, he will punish all who refuse to repent. His nature, as we talked about, demands justice. Uh, those who refuse him as Savior will face him as judge. And so let's talk about, first of all, the rider on the white horse. Without warning, in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, heaven opens. The same Jesus who went away is returning. John saw him riding toward the earth. Now consider for, for, for a minute here the contrast between the rider uh, on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6 as we looked at the four horsemen of the apocalypse versus Revelation 19. I know, I know that when we talked about that in Revelation 6, I said this is not Jesus Christ. It's, it's, uh, it's a demonic rider uh, hell-bent on conquering. But uh, the contrast here. First of all, both rode white horses. Uh, why? Because a leader of an army rode a white horse. This was the symbol of a conqueror. The, the, the apocalyptic uh, writer, chapter 6, uh, was that bent on con conquest, on conquering. Uh, the first writer wrote at the beginning of Jacob's trouble. However, now in Revelation 19, the second writer rides at the end of the tribulation as things begin to come to a close. Uh, the first writer has less power than the second does. The first only has a bow. The second has a sword. The word, the word, that all he has to do is speak, and it's accomplished. Um, uh, the first one wore temporary, a temporary Stephanos crown. We talked about that. This type of crown was usually woven from leaves and small branches of a tree. The second wore many gold diadem crowns. These were the crowns that kings wore. Jesus wears many crowns because he's the king of heaven and all the nations, all right? Hallelujah. I don't know about you. Once again, I, I sit at my desk and I'm studying this and I just like, this is so awesome. This is so exciting. I mean, I just like inside my, I'm just like, 
I can't explain it other than just read it, study it, and meditate on it, and God will bless you because of it. Anyway, all right. Um, the first one, the name of the first is not mentioned. The second is called Faithful and True. He is loyal to those who serve Him. His word is dependable. His promises are yes and amen and true. With justice, He judges and makes war. He has the one name that no one but Himself knows. Only God knows Himself, fully knows Himself. But we know Him as the Word of God. The same word that John, the author here, writes about in John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so he is the same word that John wrote about. From the beginning he has been God and with God the Father. The Father spoke to us through his, uh, this word. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. All authority, all power belongs to him. Uh, the first uh, in Revelation 6 wore ordinary clothes. The second a robe dipped in blood. All right, dipped in blood because of the, the, uh, the death, basically, that we're going to cover in Armageddon and such. At His first coming, Jesus shed His blood for us. However, at His second coming, He will shed the blood of His enemies. Armageddon is at hand. The blood of the battle will be so deep that the horses can swim in it. Revelation 14, 20, Christ has eyes like fire, an iron rod, and a sword flashing from His mouth. This, honestly, is going to be a great time for you and I to be riding behind him and not standing in front of him with justice coming. All right? And so uh, you say, well, I can't ride a horse. You're going to be able to ride a horse. Hallelujah. All right? It's going to be cool. And, and it's, anyway, I'll get on more now. Um, so the, the first rider is followed by war, famine, death, and Hades. The second rider is followed by the armies of heaven. These include the angels and all the redeemed, usually soldiers dressed in clothes that are green and brown, but we are following him fine linen, white and clean. In other words, it looks as if we're going to a wedding instead of a battle. All right. Jude saw a vision of Christ returning in Jude 14 and 15. says, See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of His holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all, all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in all the ungodly ways and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Um, how did the saints or holy ones get to heaven? Uh, we, as I said, surmised they went up in the rapture. We believe this happened before the tribulation. Notice that there is no mention of a rapture in Revelation 19. Yet believers are behind the Lord and sinners are in front of Him, before Him. When Jesus returns to judge the earth, it is not for the saints, it is with them. We will be riding with Him. So, the rider on the white horse, King of kings, Lord of lords. Jesus. Uh, let's talk about the Battle of Armageddon. This gets interesting here. Uh, several Old Testament prophets, prophets predicted this great battle. Um, Cross-reference Joel chapter 2, 28 through 3, 16, Zephaniah 14, 3 through 5. So four truths that stand out in the verses in Revelation 19, 17 through 21. First of all, the place of the battle is Armageddon. Armageddon is a Hebrew word. It means the mountain of Megiddo. 
if you look this up online, you can see the plain of Megiddo. You can see where this is going to transpire. In John's day, it was simply a small mountain, about 70, mi- uh, 70 feet tall. It's located about 50 miles northeast of Jerusalem, near Mount Carmel. Uh, Megiddo is a famous place where many great battles were fought that you can read about in the Bible. Judges 5, 19, 2 Kings 23, 29, 2 Chronicles 35, 32. The Bible says that Christ will fight against the nations at this famous battleground. After Armageddon, there will be a thousand years of peace on earth. Now, we go on to number two. Second, the purpose of the battle is for God to pour out his wrath and judgment. Now, Jesus Christ is, himself is the one who basically um, uh, is the one who treads the grapes of wrath, Revelation 19, 15. And I have other cross-references for you. Jeremiah 25, 31, the atonement will respond to the ends of the earth. The Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. We have Zephaniah 3.8. Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have, I have, God says, I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Zephaniah 3.8. We have Joel 3.12. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. And then cross-reference Revelation 14, 19, and 20. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city. And here it is. And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, or 180 miles. And so we have that picture of then the purpose of the battle. God's going to pour out his wrath on evil, wicked mankind. All right, thirdly, the third is the plan for gathering the nations is of God. Um, And we have cross-references, Joel 3, 9 through 11, proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war, rouse the warriors, let all the fighting men draw and attack Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weakling say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side, and assemble there. We have Ezekiel, just to cross-reference. Read Ezekiel 38 and 39. I'm going to cover that a little bit, but basically talk about Gog and Magog. John's picture of Gog and Magog is a little bit different from Ezekiel. Um, we'll get into that more in the, in the next few weeks, but whatever. Uh, Revelation 16, you recall, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of the Lord Almighty. Basically, we say, well, that was the evil spirits doing that. No, God is the one who is directing the evil spirits to do his bidding. God gives Satan power, even the power to deceive. 
okay? But it's God. God is the one who is doing all this. Never, ever forget that. Uh, yeah, demons do gather the nations to Armageddon, Revelation 16. Uh, but, but the demons, as I said, do miracles to influence people. But where do they get that power? God gives them what power is needed to accomplish God's purposes. All right? They lead the leaders and their nations to the slaughter of Armageddon. As I said, Ezekiel 38 and 39 refers to Gog and Magog. They are either nations or leaders. They come against Israel from the north like Assyria and Babylon come. They come to the fight against Israel before the millennium. They are among the many nations that God gathers to destroy. As I said, John refers to Gog and Magog in a different, broader way after the millennium. More about that in Revelation chapter 20. But the battle occurs here at the end of the tribulation. Remember, first three and a half years, peace. Second three and a half years, hell on earth. All right, they think uh, most people on earth hate God. They think they're destroying God's plans, but God uses Satan and sinners to fulfill his purpose. Friends, the satanic trinity will gather the nations to fight against God. When it's too late, they will realize they were fulfilling God's plan. All right, I love that too. Recall the way God used Judas. Judas enabled the leaders to find Jesus and kill him on the exact day of killing the Passover lamb. God's going to use the Antichrist. God's going to use whoever God needs to use to accomplish God's purpose. Again, always remember God has the last word, period. Fourthly, uh, the person who defeats evil is the rider on the white horse. Thank you, Lauren. Um, last point. Uh, the army following Christ, as I said in my post on Facebook today, is the safest army a person could ever join. Uh, notice that the soldiers in white following Christ do not have any weapons. Why? Because we're not going to be fighting, nor will we be wounded. All the blood at Armageddon will be from the enemies of God. The saints will not receive a scratch or a mark or a stain. Why? Because the battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. All right? The only sword that kills comes from the mouth of the rider on the white horse. He will strike down the nations with the sword. Church, all he has to do is speak the word. All he has to do is speak the word, the sword of the word, the fire, the power of his spoken word. Think about that. Think of how that accomplishes the will and the ways of God. He will speak the word and they will be dead. Then the birds will have a time of their own little feast. Their own little supper, all right? Revelation 19, 19 21 uh, talks about that. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Consider the contrast between the two feasts in Revelation 19. Believers will eat with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm kind of thinking that we're going to eat and not gain weight. <laughs> we're we're going to have our glorified bodies, amen? Amen? You know, that'll be awesome. Believers will eat with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Unbelievers will be eaten by the birds. You say, that's for the birds. Yes, it is. All right. They will be eaten by the buzzards. Now, today he knocks. He's still on a throne. 
of grace and a throne of mercy, and sinners still have time to repent. Tomorrow, he rides, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And so tomorrow he rides, so saints, be encouraged. I want to play for you a song that was very uh, much sung, and, and I used to have a bumper sticker on my car, Yes, Lord, We Will Ride. It's by Lyndall Cooley of the Browns Revival. And uh, listen to the words, and it's a little out of context biblically, because most songs are, but anyway, he has a sword uh, actually coming out of his mouth, but the song says his hand. But go ahead and play that song, listen to the words. It's five minutes long, we'll close with this. this land. He has fire in his eyes and a sword in his hand. He's riding a white horse all across this land. He's calling out to you and me. Take my time. I want to sing this one for all the folks who thinks our God's not all that big of stuff. 
Amen. As Stephen Curtis Chapman says, saddle up your horses, get ready to ride. Amen. All right, that's all we have for tonight. Next week, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 20, looking then at the millennium. We'll, we'll look at the three views, A, millennialism, post-millennialism, as well as pre, and then the six characteristics of the millennium, and then move on from there with a few other things as well. So in prep for that, read Revelation chapter 20.